just as we as as I came in this morning and the team was practicing, and I, I don't say this with any sense of pride because really it, I, I should be a little bit more organized, but most of the time I'm not really, I haven't really finalized what I'm preaching on. They practice like the beginning of the week, and usually like when I'm done practicing, I, when I'm done preaching today, I'm not thinking tomorrow about what I'm preaching, you know, I need a, a break, and they start practicing on Monday and Tuesday, so we don't really, we don't really connect much, and so the title of the message is, What's Your Excuse? And I want to talk about, you know, the reason that we don't allow the Holy Spirit to operate fully through us. And so as I came in, uh, Ruth said, you know, I, I hope you're preaching something to do with surrender, because that's what all these songs have to do with. And it's just so awesome how God does that. You know, it's, it's His service. You're His people. And you've heard me repeat again and again that He loves you so much that He's not going to let get me get in the way of the message that he has for you as children. Amen. And so, uh, as I mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter. It's regarded as the birth of the church. And the church, you know, we gather together on Sundays primarily for two things. We gather to worship the Lord, to, to just be in his presence, to sing to him, to worship him, to set aside this time to, to just be with him. And, 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 and we come here to be equipped to be trained for the mission. Last week we said, if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. And so we see here with these, with these folks who, again, were, were fearful. They didn't know their leader had been taken. It was, it was confusing. And instead, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and everything changes. I read this in a devotion this morning. It says this. It says, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes everything that Jesus did for you real in your life. I like that description. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes everything that Jesus did for you real in your life. Because if it's not application, it's just ideas. It's just thoughts. It's just a, a way to think. But the Holy Spirit is what seals it and what applies it and what challenges and convicts. You know, I like... Uh, I like when Ruth prayed for the sting. You're at the point now, you're just getting ready for the sting. You know the sermons are going to hurt a little. But you know what? Where the, the whole gospel message is good news. And you've heard me say before, the good news is that God loves you right where you are. But the even better news is that he loves you so much he doesn't want you to remain right where you are. And so the, the gospel message is more him, less me. John 3.30. Jesus must increase and we must decrease. So all of the Christian life is one of change. It's one of growth. It's one of us being different than we are today. And it's only through the Holy Spirit can that happen. We need to surrender to Jesus and trust him for salvation. And we need to submit to the Spirit daily to allow God to do his work through us. You know, we just sang, you know, I, I'm not my own. I belong to you. Can you imagine what this church, what our community would look like if we held nothing back. If we lived as, as though we were fully his and we were instruments. The Bible talks about us being instruments of God. Can you imagine what it would look like if we lived our lives, if we were conscious every day that we are instruments of God? So this morning, essentially, what we're really just doing is, is we're continuing what it seems like has been sort of one conversation over these past few months regarding basically what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus? We talked about what it means as individuals with our inner spiritual lives. 
We talked about what it means for us collectively as a body of believers, as we care and show the love of Jesus within the local church family, and then outward as we engage the world. And so we talked about what it means to be light, and how the only way to live is to live for Jesus, to die to self, to live for Christ. You know, Paul says, to live is Christ. We explored that freedom truly comes when we understand that the power of the gospel is that we are both fully known and fully loved. That we are also fully forgiven when we trust in Jesus so he can work in and through us. And here's the reality, here's the truth. And some of you are here and you need to hear this truth because you're in a circumstance, you're in a situation that to you seems like it's, you know, it's, it's dark, it's, you know, God can't do anything good in the situation, but God can and will redeem and use even our darkest times. God is a God of healing and restoration and redemption, and he will heal and restore past hurts and relationships, and he will heal and restore difficulties. You know, we have no problem believing that God created the whole universe. We have no problem believing that, that he died so we'll be with him in heaven someday. But yet, for some reason, we have a problem believing that he intervenes in our little everyday problems. And I, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if the enemy's convinced of, that we're not significant enough or if the enemy's just convinced us, you know, that other people are more deserving. But I want you to know this truth, that God loves you that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And that regardless of what you may have heard your whole life, that you're created in the image of God and that you have potential far beyond what you can even imagine. We say here, you know, and it's kind of like a little joke, like, you know, it, it wasn't something that we thought about, but, you know, Darren always picks up these little things. He likes phrases and he says, you know, that this sort of this hashtag no better life. And everything we talk about, everything we do, that phrase keeps coming up, no better life. Because the, the, the reality is, I know it's difficult to follow Jesus, and you've heard me say that before, but it's even more difficult not to follow him. Believe me when I tell you, there is no better life than life as a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to continue exploring this awesome way that we get to live, this awesome family that we've been adopted into, and we're going to try to remove the excuses that the enemy, and sometimes the flesh. I think a lot of times the enemy gets blamed for stuff that's only our flesh. But we're going to look at some of the excuses that the enemy and the flesh often provide us. Remember, and this is very important, and it's, it's been the theme the past few weeks. The enemy's goal is to separate you from the things that nurture you and give you life. I want to say that again. The enemy's goal is to separate you from the things that nurture you and give you life. And it doesn't matter if those things are overt and, and atrocious sin or if those things are just some you know, morally neutral thing that's, remo that's re uh, re removing you or keeping you away from the things of God. From Christian community and prayer and the word of God, time alone reflecting on Jesus, the enemy will just as soon use Facebook or a TV show than some egregious sin. Because we're all on the lookout for the big stuff. You know, don't cheat on your wife and don't, you know, don't, you know, cheat on your taxes and don't steal and don't kill and, you know, don't do drugs. We're, all, we're looking at the big stuff. And meanwhile, we're distracted with all these little things and the enemy's happy because our focus is off of the cross as our eyes are off of Jesus. You ever hear this quote, don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. 
I think it's more like don't let the distractions of the world tempt you away from the fullness of life that Jesus talks about. Don't let the enemy give you a substitute, secondary, less than life compared to the one that God has for you. And if just in this past week, you know, as I kind of went through the day, I noticed on my countertop there was a little card written. And it was, uh, I try to not embarrass my family, but this is my life. These are the things that happened to me. And it was this little card written by one of Amelia's friends. And she's a foreign exchange student from Thailand. And she came and she was here for, I think, about a year, right? About a year or so. Uh, <laughs> and I just read this card. And this little girl was sharing about, you know, she came here and she was afraid and she didn't know, you know, how she'd feel without anybody. And she, she met Amelia and Amelia f- made her feel so good and so included and so loved. And I was just so proud, you know. And so then, you know, I'm going through my day and Finn, you know, just turned 19, like I said. And I don't know, I'm going to embarrass him. He's somewhere too. And he was just walking out the door and he said, I love you, dad. And he left. And I thought, whoa. He didn't even ask for money. He just said, I love you, Dad, and left. It wasn't, I love you, Dad, can I have 20 bucks? It was just an, I love you, Dad. And I, like, I held on to that. And then, and then I'm walking in the garage, and there's this little, there's this little uh, bowl, and it has all this tissue paper in it. And there's a little note, and it says, shh, there's a bird egg. And she's got this little bird egg that she found that she's waiting for it to hatch. And on the side of it, it says, these are his worms. Please don't take. Now, why am I sharing all this? Because God is good. Because sometimes I think the things we think are, are you know, incidentals or, or, or you know, side, side roads are really the, the life things, are really the big things. Sometimes I think we miss the beauty and the little things. My father, and I've read it before, I'm not going to read the letter, but my dad, when he... Uh, when he knew he was dying, he wrote himself a letter of all the things he, he was thankful for. And this one phrase has never left me. It's always, this one phrase I always remember. He said, thank you for helping me see the beauty in the little things. And sometimes it takes, you know, death. It takes sickness for us to stop and just look at the beauty of the little things. You see, your life and my life is going to go by. Five years, 10 years, 20 years, it goes by quick. And I'm going to challenge you because I don't want you to miss out. And because I've never heard anyone say who decided to follow Jesus with all their heart and soul that they've regretted it. I've heard all kind of people who chased money and were very successful say they regret that. I've heard people who, you know, left their family for another relationship and they regretted that. I've heard people with all kind of regrets for all kind of choices, but I've yet to hear somebody say, you know, I really regret that I gave it all up for Jesus. And so I want you to believe that. And I don't want you to miss out. I want you to go deeper. That's going to be the takeaway phrase. Every week, I'm going to try to give you one sentence that's going to summarize so you can remember the whole gist of that sermon. And so this morning, that one sentence is go deeper. And each week, I want you to ask yourself how you can apply the sermon to your life. My wife said, you know, that's one of the things I need to do better is in a, in a long list in the world. And this, I just mean as far as preaching goes, believe me. This is, lest you think there's only one thing on the do better list. 
No, but she said, you know, to, to bring it to an application, to bring it to, okay, how do I apply this to my life? And so I can do my part, but on, on your end, what you have to say is, okay, you know, well, what Pastor Brian said, not just I liked that or, you know, that had an emotional reaction, but how can I connect it to my life? How can I make it practical and real? So the question is, you know, what's the takeaway? What can I do different? What's one thing? You know, I'm like a goal guy, so I'll set like 50,000 crazy goals. And my wife will be like, just pick one little thing. Just do one tiny little thing, right? I'm going to, you know, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if we're going to make goals, let's make a, a whole bunch of goals. Let's have an ideal life, right? But let's start small. Just pick one takeaway, one thing you can do and change. So I'm going to do my part, and I'm praying that you're going to do yours. The reality is I am excited more than ever to be a part of this church family. We have new people joining us, it seems, each week. We're trying to find a place to call our own to accommodate and be able to grow. I'd love for us to have things like a Sunday school, multiple services, to host kids' events. I was just saying how much I love to teach at Teen Challenge. I teach a lot. I'd love to be able to teach, like have a class on this or a class on that and have sign-ups to stuff like that. Well, people are coming to know Jesus. They're maturing in the faith. They're getting baptized. We have a few more. We have wonderful worship teams. The youth group is growing. They've had these different trips. They're planning another trip. They put on a talent show. We're financially healthy. Hopefully, we'll be able, I'll be able to move 100% to full-time soon. Kids camp's coming up. We always have over 50 kids and their families exposed to the gospel. As I mentioned, August 4th, we'll have our second annual Sunday fun day. We have men's, a men's ministry that's growing. I mean, what kind of, you know, I tell people that even churches that have lots of people, they're like, you get 30 guys to come out on a Saturday? What are you doing? I'm like, you got these guys, these, you got to taste these home fries. I'm telling you, it's just, it's the corned beef hash that Gary makes. But 30 men to come out on a Saturday and growing. So we have a men's ministry that's growing. And the women's just had a wonderful ladies brunch. We're thinking of maybe doing a men's retreat. I say all this to say, don't sit on the sidelines. Get into the game. Commit. Jesus says this in Revelation 3, 16 through 22. So because, now he's, this is a warning to the churches and to all of us, because we're the church. We get some things right, and then sometimes we get some things wrong. We lose our first love. And so we need to be aware and, and be willing to adjust so Jesus says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Just in case it wasn't painful enough the first time, 
for us. And I want you to listen to the words. And each of us are in a different place, but it's always, you know, church is always taking people from what they know about God to what they need to know. And we all need to mature and grow in our faith. And so as I read this, I want you to recognize that these are the words of Jesus that he's speaking to each of us. And I want you to just have an open heart, have an open mind, see in your life where this speaks to you. And after I read the scripture one more time, we're going we're gonna to play a short video. You guys should be ready back there with that. And, uh, and I want, in light of this scripture, I want to hear what the gentleman has to say. Revelation three sixteen through 22. Jesus says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me finish with this uh, story. Uh, we go to China from time to time, and, and uh, uh, we train leaders. And this time, we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province, and they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in, and when you teach in China, you start at 8 in the morning, and you don't get done till 5 at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around and I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. I looked at him and I said, you, you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunan province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles, and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway, and as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break, and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh yes, I've memorized many chapters. 
said, where did you memorize so many chapters? She said, in prison. She said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> so I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because <laughs> even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. And you guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? <laughs> I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like, uh, you become like us, but I will pray that we become just like you. It's pretty powerful. I was, uh, you know, the way that things come together, I was preparing my sermon and Jamie had texted me that and he just said, I'm not sure if you've seen this. And I said, That's, I hadn't seen it. And I said, I'm going to put that in my sermon. It was uh, right on. And so, so what does this mean to us? I mean, what do we do? Should we feel guilt or shame because we were born in the United States? Should we feel guilt or shame because compared to the rest of the world, comparatively speaking, we're wealthy? Guilt? No. Shame? No. Gratitude and responsibility? Absolutely. And what Jesus is saying in that scripture I just read is that we tend to show neither. We tend to think that we don't need anything, that we're all set that we're secure with our own accomplishments. And Jesus is saying to that way of thinking, we are wretched and poor and naked and we're blind because we don't even realize it. You know, when I told you one of my favorite scriptures was Genesis 50, 20, what the enemy intended to harm me, you used for good. Listen to me, God doesn't break us to hurt us. He breaks us to heal us. God doesn't break you to leave you in a, in, a, in a, you know, lump, crying and in shame and in guilt. He breaks you so he can remold you into something more beautiful than you can ever imagine. And in verse 19, 
after he gives this warning, he says this statement. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's because I care about you and because I love you that I'm telling you these things. And so he says, be earnest. Take it seriously. Be thoughtful. Be intentional. And just live different. It's as simple as that. Be earnest and repent. That's all we have to do. Commit to change. Be serious about it. Be different. Don't beat yourself up about it. Don't whine about it. Just turn it around with the Lord's help, with the help of a brother or a sister, and do it. Or, or you don't have to. And I'm going to read you this in Genesis 4. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now what's happening here is that God has given, as he does to us, these brothers everything. And one of them has gratitude. And one of them has an understanding that it all comes from God. And so he chooses the best and he gives the best back to the Lord. And the other one, rather than give the best, gives the Lord less than. Kind of an afterthought. Not with a heart of gratitude, with probably with a heart of reluctance. Probably out of this idea of compulsion. And it says the Lord didn't look with favor on Cain's offering. And then it says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. It's so funny to me, yet it's so true, that when we do the wrong thing, we get angry. Like, we, like we did something wrong. We, we have every right to receive discipline from the Lord, and yet our response is in rebellion to be angry. It's like a little kid pouting exactly what it is and this is serious stuff because some people when faced with the reality of what God expects from them when they compare how they're living now with how God wants them to live they get mad and so all of us have choices to make every day you can sit when you're faced with conviction or with a challenge or you're faced with, with, with some sin in your life or something that God's dealing with you in and you can get mad and you can have a downcast face and you can complain to everybody that'll listen because that's what most people do. Or, or this, verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In another translation, it says, will not your countenance be lifted? In other words, if you do the right thing, everything's going to be fine. So God's saying, what are you so upset about? All you have to do is stop being so prideful and so stubborn. All you have to do is commit yourself to repentance and to doing things differently. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But here's the alternative. 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What an ominous warning. Because we know the decision that was made. And we know that the first murder, the first brothers to be born under the curse, Cain and Abel, and the first murder is when Cain didn't take the Lord's advice. And rather than repent, and rather than allow the Lord to lift his countenance up, he let that anger fester and turn to jealousy, and he killed his brother. And so this is serious stuff because the choices we make, our response to what God is, is telling us and teaching us and disciplining, disciplining us have some very serious consequences. And it might not be tomorrow's decision that brings the catastrophe or the disaster, but it's something that, that's beginning in your heart that if you allow that to fester, then rather than be grateful and rather than be committed and rather than have a heart of love and service, you're going to have enmity and strife and jealousy. And when you continue down the path of anger instead of repentance... Verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God loves us. And he shows us truths that give life. Truths that help us, not hurt us. But we need to repent oftentimes because we've simply not trusted him. And so he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is inviting each of us back into an intimate relationship with him. Now, I don't know where each of you are with your relationship with Jesus. I know that we can all always go deeper, right? That's the sentence I said. But I pray with my heart of hearts, that wherever you are, that whatever you're facing, that you hear these words of Jesus. That he disciplines you because he loves you and that he says, listen, if you hear my voice and you open the door of, of, of your heart, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. That we will be back into that intimate relationship that we once had. I talked to somebody yesterday struggling, called me for prayer. And he said, I just feel so far away from God. And I said, well, what does the word of God say? Because we put so much stock and so much emphasis on feelings. And I'm a feelings guy, so I get it. But you know what? We need to recognize the truth of the word has more authority than how we feel. I'm not, I'm not mitigating that. I'm not denying feelings. I'm not, not, I'm not lacking compassion. But I'm saying sometimes we have to allow the truth of the word of God to penetrate. We have to take our thoughts captive. Amen? And so James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And often we stop there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delve deeper. But that's the go-to, right? You feel far from God, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's simple. Take a step. And out of a thousand steps, I think it was Max Lucati who said, Jesus asked us to take one and he takes the 999. But then there's more to this scripture. 
Because we, we, you know, we like to kind of have the watered down like nice virgin, right? So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then we just stop. That's not actually the whole verse. What the whole verse said is a little more harsh. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Huh. We usually keep that out because that, that, that's, that's harsh. That's not very nice, Jesus. I don't think that's polite. But here's the reality. We often say we want answers, but 99 out of 100 times, we know the answers. We just need to decide. We just need to, to do it. And so here's the message version. Again, sometimes this is helpful. When you're doing, when I'm doing, you know, there's difference between studying to teach and devotional study and reading scripture. And so I don't recommend the message as your only Bible, but a lot of times it does bring clarity to, to certain things. And so I'm going to read the message version of this scripture. James 4, verse 8 through 10. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get up on your feet. I want to read that again. And I want you to listen. So let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll ever get up on your feet. Quit playing the field. Stop with the one foot in the church and the one foot in the world. Now this isn't legalism. I'm not talking about legalism, about doing things to gain the love of God. We have the love of God through Christ. But I'm saying that in response to that, we ought to be living for him. And sometimes it's not about, you know, we make these excuses and we blame the enemy and I'm, I'm going to look at a few things that get in our way in our lives, but sometimes we just have to decide. Sometimes it's simply a matter of, you know what, sometimes I tell the guys at Teen Challenge and, you know, it, it, it sounds, you know, at Teen Challenge it doesn't seem so mean here, it's going to seem mean maybe. Because those guys, I'm like, stop whining, man up. Feels like it wouldn't be nice if I said that to you guys. But some of you probably need to hear that. I needed to hear that. Stop whining, man up. Right? And I say that with, with all the love in the world. But you know, I, I'll never forget Gary Taylor, you know, the founding pastor of this church, driving me to rehab for maybe the third or fourth time. And I was there and I was making all these excuses about this time. And I, you know, I'm going on and on. And he said, Will you shut up? And he said, you know, all you've done this whole time is make excuses for your behavior. And he said, meanwhile, you've had every opportunity. You have people that love you. You've had every chance, every option. Stop whining and man up. 
And you know what? He was exactly right. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Stop storing up for yourself treasures on earth where they'll fade away. Nobody cares what your bank balance is or what kind of car you drive. People care if you're kind. And so I want each of us to look at some of the excuses we come up with. And each of us have at one time been guilty of these. Hopefully I'm not giving you a new excuse that you haven't used yet. So I want to look at four reasons that we don't put God first. And I want to look at what the Bible says about those things. And maybe we'll get through all of it, maybe we won't. But again, sometimes it's the flesh of the world, and sometimes it, sometimes it is the enemy. Sometimes it is there's a spiritual battle. And sometimes it's just, we're lazy, right? Sometimes it's just, our, we, you know, we want to stay in bed a little bit longer. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. I've heard it said before, that God expects us to use things and love people, and far too often we use people and love things. God expects us to use things and love people, and too often we use people and love things. So four things I want to look at. Unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear. And again, we'll see how far. Unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear. Now, when I say unbelief, I'm not necessarily talking about a lack of belief in God. Because, again, a lot of times we believe God exists. And, again, it's, you know, it, it's definitely a spiritual battle. But, you know, we can believe that, you know, yes, God created the whole universe. And, you know, yes, he, you know, he does all these things. But yet we have this struggle, this difficulty, and we think, ah, you know, God, you know, this is too big for him to handle. My little problem. Or whatever the reason is that we keep ourselves from believing that God wants to fulfill his promises it's more of a trust you know and and trust comes with relationship you know you trust somebody as you get to know them I could give you somebody's resume and they could have an impeccable resume with you know all you know multiple doctorates from the best institutions in the world and and they could come highly regarded and then I could say you know do you want to leave your child alone with them and you don't know because just because you have information, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a trust. You need to have a relationship. You need to understand. And as you walk in a relationship, you'll develop the trust. And so these things, you know, you have to have a first step. You know, the Bible says that it doesn't make sense to those who are perishing. That this is nonsense. This is craziness to the world. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So these are spiritual principles. And if we're not saved, if we haven't put our trust in Jesus for salvation, then we can't. We're not going to trust his promises. We have to be in a relationship. And so Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That means without reservation. That means with everything you are and everything you have, with your intellect, with your emotions, with your feelings, with your decisions, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Listen, again and again and again and again, all you'll hear is the same thing. You heard it, I think, when Ruth prayed. God is after your heart. He will pursue you relentlessly from the day you were born. Because he loves you. 
and you were created to be in relationship with him. You were created to give him glory with your life so that when people look at you, they say, Jesus is amazing. You know, when I looked at that, my, that little card that, that was written and, and you know, I, I thought of my daughter and I realized, you know, just the, the attitude she has. I'm grateful for my daughter and the, like who she is and as a person and I love her. But right away, my heart went to, boy, I'm so proud of the Christ in my daughter. Boy, I'm so proud of the Jesus that comes out of my little girl. And I want God to say that about each of us. I want God to look at you and to look at me and to say, I'm so proud of my son that when people look at him that they see me. Because that's what your life's about. If you're a Christian, your allegiance gets shifted. And you say, it's no longer King Brian that rules this kingdom. Now it's King Jesus. And I submit to him with everything. And every day we're going to wrestle and I'm going to take my will back and we're going to go back and forth. But you know what? At this, after that, I'm going to stop. I'm going to repent and we're going to do it again. Because we're not perfect, but we're going we're gonna to focus. We're going to repent. We're going to stay on track. And so trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, no matter how much you think you know in light of what God knows, you know, trust me, I'm the research monkey for this one, right? Just learn from my bad choices. There's a way that leads, that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now the reality is, and psychologists and doctors will tell you, that when you have a, a, um, when you have a happier demeanor or when you're mentally healthy, that that translates to physical health. So that this statement is more than just a spiritual principle, it's actually a physical reality. In other words, if you can live your life with a sense of peace and with a sense of trust in him versus worrying all the time, it's going to literally make you healthier physically. Because what's the alternative? We worry about, we're stressed out about all kinds of stuff. I saw the quote, quote the other day and it said, you know, I lived a long life and it had something to do with worry, but the, the point of it was, the effect of it was like 80% of the stuff we worry about never comes to pass. So that means all the stuff you and I worry about, all the stuff that takes place in our head, never even comes to pass. I mean, it's bad enough when you worry about things that are real, but we're worrying about, you know, things that, that don't even come to pass. That affects us. You don't think that has a physical effect on us, on being able to sleep right? And so this is a way, it says it'll bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's a promise of God. That means you're here right now, and if you don't know Jesus, or if you know him and you're far from him, or you're not walking, you're hungry. You're thirsty. You're malnourished. And you're going to try to go for the, the Chinese food or the fast food. That feels good for like a second, and then you go, why did I do that? That's not nourishing. 
It's the instant pleasure over the lasting joy. What are you going to go after? Because Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you're not going to be hungry. And if you believe in me, you're not going to be thirsty. I'll take it then that the, that the alternative is true, that unbelief or not believing in, in Jesus, a turning away from Jesus in order to seek satisfaction in other things, is going to make us constantly hungry and constantly thirsty. And belief in Jesus is coming to Jesus for all of our satisfactions and all of our needs and all of our longings. Belief is not mainly in agreement with facts in the head. Listen, belief is not mainly in agreement with the facts in our head. It is mainly an appetite in the heart which fastens onto Jesus for satisfaction. It is an appetite in the heart which fastens on to Jesus for satisfaction. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. My testimony of belief in God as an idea, then belief in God as the Lord of my life, and then trust in God and his promises. That's how it started. I started and I went from being an atheist to believing that God existed. Right? And I, I told people, you know, I, I, I made I, the idea of a savior I accepted. I needed, I needed to be saved. But I didn't, I, it wasn't King Jesus. It was still King Brian. It took me a while to get to that place where I would trust him, where I would believe his promises. But we need to, we need to move and to move from that, that saving faith, that, that Jesus that saves us also wants to be the Lord of our life. And again, all this is, it's not just by grace you've been saved through faith. It's also by grace you're being sanctified through faith. It's not like we're saved and it's entirely a matter of faith and then we work all this out on our own. No, even this, when that brother was telling me, you know, I struggle with, with my belief and I struggle with my faith and I feel far from God, I said, pray. It's so funny to me that people are afraid to pray for an increased measure of faith. Like God doesn't know that. You can ask him. You can say, God, I don't even believe in you right now. Help me. What's the best prayer? One of the best prayers in the Bible? I believe. Help my unbelief. It's probably the most honest prayer I've ever prayed in the history of man. I believe. With my heart and soul, I believe. But sometimes, deep down inside, the enemy, my flesh, the struggle, help my unbelief. Increase my faith. And so in order to combat this lack of trust and unbelief, we've got to do a few things. We need to pray like that man who wanted his son healed. I believe, help my unbelief. We need to remember back when God came through. We need to look back and like I said, you know, oftentimes it's hard to see the Lord working in the moment, but when we look back, we can see so clearly his hand on our life, on these circumstances, so clearly directing and assisting and so if you need to be encouraged, if you're going through the midst of a struggle right now and you're having struggle with your faith and struggle with unbelief, look back and remember a time when he stood with you firmly. Take part in small groups. Be part of the sharing and the encouragement that comes from, from groups, from reading other testimonies, from hearing other testimonies of God's work. And read the book. Read the book. Read the word. If we want to trust God more, we need to learn more about him. We need to know his promises to us. We need to read the word of God. We need to have it in our heart. 
Like in that video, those people have such a treasure for the word of God. And what happens when you get spoiled, you tend to take things for granted. And so when Jesus in Revelation, when he's talking to the churches, he's talking to people who they think they're all set. And I didn't notice it because I've grown up here all my life, but, you know, Pastor Gary, when he came from Philadelphia or whatever, he used to say, that's such a New England thing when you said, how are you doing? And people go, I'm all set. Like, he's like, what does that even mean? I'm all set. I didn't ask you if you're all set. I asked you, how are you doing? But I didn't notice that. People say, hey, what's up? I'm all set. I'm good. I'm good. You know, like, you know, I'm good. Everything's cool. And Jesus is going, you're not good. You're not good. You're naked and you're wretched and you're blind and you're pitiful. And if you know that, that's good. Step one, because I have good news for you. I came to die in your place so you can have that relationship with God that you've been searching for your entire life. And then from there, we get to be on this journey that is so difficult, but is so beautiful. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm going to close with this. Ask the worship team to come up. I have a remarkable testimony. I was sharing it the other day with somebody, and sometimes because it's so close to me, it, 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 uh, it, you know, you just kind of take it for granted. But I was sharing with somebody the story, and particularly with me and um, Jamie and, and Darren, and we were talking about it was a. I got asked from a leader of the denomination, you know, about what works, what makes the team work, and what what makes uh, what's the DNA of South Coast. And I said, you know, I was dying, literally was dying, and you know, I, I God brought me to the doors of the Teen Challenge, and I thought my life was over. I thought the whole thing was was done. And He brought me to the place, and that's where you hear me say that quote: "I don't surrender to be done; I surrender to begin." Right? He brought me to this place of just just I gave up. And it was, it's like that, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? It was the worst day of my life, and it was the best day of my life at the same time. And I had an encounter with Jesus that just radically changed me forever. And a year and a half later, I sat down in a room looking across for, for a friend of mine for, for 30 years and seeing that death in his eyes and knowing that he was hopeless and knowing that he didn't think that anything would ever change but praying and pleading to God that maybe, maybe some way, and I didn't, I didn't believe it. I'm going to tell you right now, so I'm not going to sit here and say that when we sat down and did an intervention with Jamie that I thought he was going to go to Teen Challenge, because I didn't. I thought he was either going to punch one of us in the face, or I thought he was going to run out of the house. I didn't think he was going to go. But man, did I pray to God that he did. And he did. And in nine, ten months, Jesus changed his life. And then about a year after that, the two of us asked to sit down with another friend of ours, Darren, who had been going through some struggles. And Jamie and I found ourselves sitting down and sharing the joy of Christ that we found with Darren. And Darren, who, you know, everybody's story is different, very successful on Wall Street, that kind of a background. And he said to me, I can go anywhere in the world. Why would I go to Teen Challenge? And I said, because I know a guy who used to be in the mob and he's murdered people and he was a real bad guy. And I said, and the last time I talked to that guy, he's ministering to prostitutes on the, on the streets of Jerusalem, people that nobody cares about. 
And when I asked him, and I said, Jimmy, you know, why, why are you doing that? It's dangerous over there. And he said, my whole life I worked for the devil. If God wants to take me now, I'm okay with that. I said, you show me a program that produces that kind of life change, and that's where I'll tell you to go. And Darren ended up going through Teen Challenge. And so as I shared this story, I realized that 30 years ago, that the three biggest knuckleheads, the most unlikely of, of people in the world, would come to know Jesus, would serve him together, and would have the great privilege of, of being part of a ministry, there, there is truly no better life. Amen. And the fact that, that we get to do this is amazing and incredible. And Jesus knew. He knew 30 years ago when we were doing what we were doing that someday this is what he would have us do. But we're not remarkable individuals. We have a remarkable God. And that's not a unique testimony. That's common because what God does is he takes situations where everybody else goes, yeah, it's the end of the road. There's no turning back. There's no redemption. My friend, the violent mobster, he had been 21 years, I think he had spent in prison. Everybody was addicted to cocaine and uh, to crack and heroin. 21 years he spent in jail and he was a crack and a heroin addict. And everybody in his life, his daughter, everybody said, he's done. Nothing's going to change him. And now he has a heart for the least of these, for the most vulnerable. He says, if I don't preach to these women, nobody will. That's the amazing God we have. And he wants to use each of us He wants to use you. He wants to use me. But we have to surrender. We have to submit. And so we'll look in the coming weeks at the rest of these things. Unbelief, busyness, fear, and sin. And I want you to pray and read through that scripture that I read. Read through that revelation. Allow that to speak to you. Be willing to take an honest assessment. Because, you know, which of those things in particular? Are you having trouble trusting God? Is there ongoing constant sin in your life? You know, are you just afraid? And so we're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But if you stand, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to allow the worship team to just to lead us out. Father, I thank you that when I was unlovable by any reasonable standard, that you loved me anyway. And that that love had the power to not only break bonds, but it changed my eternity. And you used me to help change the eternity of others. Father, there's no plan B. The church is is it. It's your plan A. We are the hope of the world. You're working in and through each of us. And so, Father, help us to see ourselves, each as missionaries. Help us to go deeper to do an honest assessment of who and where we are spiritually now so you can take us deeper, Father. And I know from experience that it's always more beautiful than we could ever ask or imagine. So continue to have your way in this place. Father, as as we sing this last song, let it not just be words that fill the air, but let it be prayers from our heart that are pleasing to you. Have your way in South Coast Church. Have your way in each of our lives and each of our hearts. Help us to live fully sold out for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.